right. Make sure I've got everything up and going. Good day, everybody. Hello, Miss Ashley. Welcome uh, to another episode of Merged Worlds, the Dungeons and Dragons story podcast stream series. Like that, a new word to that every so often. Uh, episode 85, man, we're getting up there. Man, that's a big number. You know, I was uh, doing a little looking into podcasts and stuff, and well, guess what I read? about The average podcast doesn't make it to 20 episodes, so um, regardless of how many people listen, at least longevity I've gotten taken care of. Uh, I have zero doubt I'll hit 100. How far after that, I guess we'll we'll figure out when we get there, but definitely, definitely going to hit to 100, so that's anyways the goal. Um so yeah, we are continuing our story from last week, uh, jumping back in and continuing the tale that is of Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen. <laughs> Hello, MT. You're not late, I promise. I didn't even start the recap yet. Um, uh, for those of you who uh, saw or heard last week's episode, uh, quite pleased with that one. Uh, pretty big episode. Um, definitely things escalated and we really started to move into uh, some action stuff. So uh, I hope to uh, bring the same level of quality to today's episode. Uh, as uh, I, I know it's a good episode, I believe. I mean, I have faith it's a good episode uh, because my finger hurts. Uh, and that's because I've been writing all day and yesterday. So uh, I've got a lot down. Only a little bit of reading, to be honest. A lot of this is... Uh, uh, more me me just telling the story, but uh, we are we are stepping into we're stepping into story that I've been I've known what was going to happen for a very long time. So we are we are stepping into uh, uh, long term planned stuff. So uh, I've gone over it in my head a hundred times before now. So I have quite a bit of faith uh, and comfort into telling this section of the story, uh, but. We'll give a little recap, uh, as we always do, and then we'll jump into it. Uh, I'm not sure about the length of this one. I've been saying that a lot lately. I keep intending to, to bring it down a little bit to more to one, one and a half hours is more the range, but I keep going longer, and who knows? We may have that again today. It's so hard to judge how long what I have on paper will take in the telling. So again, a uh, short recap today. In last episode, uh, Deacon, Seraph, and Mugen made their way into the Red Burrow, to the uh, weekly fights that are run there. Tournament fights, a uh, way to earn money and prestige. Um, they had made a deal with a uh, kind of ruffian lord um, that uh, if they could get in there and, you know, defeat some of the, the Redborough champions and warriors, that uh, he would help them as a way of bringing down the Redborough a peg because they're kind of the strongest borough. They arrived to find Jarek, the Red Champion, uh, decimating a guy. And then, before another fight could begin, um, Jarek drags several gully dwarves into the caged in arena with the intention of sicking his dog beast on them uh, because they supposedly stole some stuff. And, uh, of course, you know, that, that couldn't be allowed. Mugen <laughs> killed the dog and then took Jarek on one-on-one -on -one successfully uh, defeating the champion <laughs> brutally and uh, killing him, uh, which uh, very quickly incited into a riot uh, that broke not only just in there, but 
uh, Burrow versus Burrow, and spilled out into the streets. The three friends became separated. Mugen and the Gully Dwarves escaped into a sewer that, unfortunately, Deacon and uh, Seraph would not fit into. Oh, MT says, saw notification, made merge with Oh, made your day work better. Well, I'm glad. There for you. <laughs> um, they managed to escape into the sewers. Um, Deacon and Seraph continued to fight their way through the streets, through the mobs, until they even they got separated. Deacon managed to climb in through the doorway of an old ramshackled multi-story building that was pretty much, you know, ready to be condemned kind of thing. Uh, just for quality. There's no condemned do not cross tapes or anything, but to give you an idea. Uh, and he saw that uh, Seraph was out fighting and such. Um, and saw he was out there. He tried to cast a spell, a simple fire spell, to kind of frighten people away and get Seraph's attention. But while he was casting it, um, he saw Seraph go down, and in that moment, it interrupted his spell, and there was a wild surge that caused just a horrendous amount of flame damage. Burned through and burrowed through uh, the people there, and uh, having to stop that surge caused such a magical explosion that the building collapsed upon him, and Sir Deacon felt himself falling deeper, deeper, uh, until you know, everything went black. Where Seraph was dragged, was taken away unconscious by the city guards. They fought to try to bring the city back under control. Uh, so that's kind of where we left off last time. All those three things happened. Oh, with one line, one more little important smidget. As um, Mugen and the gullies were fleeing through the sewers, they came through a little area where it was really loud. They couldn't hear anything. And peering through a little graded section in the wall, Mugen saw another chamber on the other side. And in it, several people were passing through, including uh, the cleric of the light, uh, cleric of knowledge, who's the head cleric of the temple in this town, who said that they would help them find Dina and saw her and a couple other people and Dina and her family passing through. Mugen screamed and tried to get her attention, but the noise was so loud, no one noticed. And the gully said there was no way to get to that chamber from where they were. And they were being fo followed by city guards, so they had to take off. Um, but that meant Dina was somewhere in the city and Mugen had found her. Now he just had to get to Seraph so they could, you know, track her down. So that's kind of where we'd left off right there. So, uh, a chunk of, uh, a chunk of stuff to get into today. Uh, our three heroes here have been separated in the city, uh, and each one will have, uh, some things to deal with in today's episode. But first, uh, we have to talk about a little something else that happens to be going on in the city at this very same time. Uh, so I'm going to begin today with really the only reading of today. Just a, a short little reading section to get us started, but uh, I think an important one that uh, will help set the stage for future events. So the Senate had gathered to discuss the civil unrest that had occurred in the city the day before. So this is the next day. The seven powerful men and women who everyone knew were the true rulers of the land had convened to determine what action should be taken and what punishments. To the few guards who stood in the chamber, it seemed the senators were not too upset about the events, perhaps even secretly pleased, though none of the guards would ever dare to imply so. The large round chamber stood inside a mighty tower, one of the oldest buildings in the city, next to the king's castle itself. Let's touch on that. As I mentioned well back, that in this very huge city, it's a massive city, and 
there's an inner city where the where the king castle is. And while the king is there, he's a bit of a flop. You know, he's you know ruler in name only. Um, you know, deals with the celebrations and so on and so forth. But the real power that runs the city is the Senate. The Senate Tower is also within that inner city, uh, not super far from the kingdom, but it is a separate building. Remember that. The tower itself is a big round tower, but with multiple chambers in it. The chamber that we're talking about is in the very center. It's a big round room, okay? Um, Stone, old, ancient building. And on the floor, uh, built into the big stone rock tile, uh, is a round drawing that is the symbol of the city, which dawns on me at this moment. I never came up with the symbol for the city. But the symbol's not important. It's just the fact that there's the symbol of the city in the middle. The senators sit kind of in the letter C. Right, so they're up in raised area, and each one kind of has almost like their own little booth where they can all see each other. Um, with the opening part of the letter C, where the doors are, where if someone was to come in to address the Senate, they would come in there and they'd be looking up on kind of a round arch, looking at the seven senators, of which uh, four are male, three are female. Each senator represents one of the seven boroughs, and behind them is the crest in their colors because while the the boroughs are very commonly just known by the colors that's what most of the uh, people will wear like a sash or a headband or something that denotes the color of their borough each borough does have uh some type of animal um or creature that is its symbol like there's a dragon there's a wyvern blood fang things like that um and so they're all behind them. so the seven senators who are all equal in power um, in power for quite a while. They're the ones that really make the big decisions in the city. Okay? Um, the proceedings had barely begun when the chamber door opened and Dyram, the court clerk, entered. One of many, but one of the main ones. What is it? asked Senator, Senator Lauren of Redborough, clearly irritated by the interruption. Can you imagine? We're going to have a meeting. Close meeting. Don't bother us. Barely get started, somebody bothers them. That's irritating. My apologies, my lords, the frightened man replied. But there is a man here who says he must speak with you. He says it is of great importance. Citizens may petition the Senate on the assigned day, replied Senator Litra of Greenborough. That is not today. Very crippled crude. Uh, the court clerk swallowed nervously. Uh, my lords, it is not a citizen is a drow. The senators were silent a moment, clearly surprised. Finally, Leitra spoke again. It has been long since a drow has been seen in these lands. Still, there are more important issues at hand at the moment. Yes, my lady, replied the clerk. He said you was afraid you'd say that, but he told me to tell you that he was a necromancer and that you would very much want to hear his words. The guards in the room could see the shock on the senators' faces, something none of them had ever really called seeing before. They were more confused when Senator Lauren ordered the drow be let inside. A moment later, the drow walked confidently into the chamber, his long white hair neatly pulled back and hanging over the shoulders of his finely made black robes. His skin, while dark like those of his race, seemed paler than expected, though if that was due to his chosen profession, none knew. 
So drow have a naturally very like black like awnings. It's just jet black skin. And this one has dark skin, but not quite as jet black as would be expected. And the implication there is maybe because he's a necromancer, you know, dealing with maybe just, you know, he's a little bit paler. A human necromancer would be known to be gaunt and pale. Maybe the same thing is with a drow. Greetings, young drow, said Senator Lauren. What brings you to our fine city? The drow stood silent a moment, smiling. Thank you, lords and ladies, for seeing me, he said. My name is Vincentius, and I've come about a matter that affects all of us. Though, if I may request, may I ask that we please speak in private? The man looked around at the guards and clerks that stood in the room. I am not used to such crowds, and my words are not normally meant for the living. Some of the senators looked surprised, others angry. They looked at each other as if speaking silently. The guards were confused by the drawer's words. Weird choice of words. That doesn't make sense. Why would he say something like that? Excuse me. Finally, Senator Lauren commanded the room be cleared. Guards hesitated, hesitated a moment, but the look on the senator's face spurred them to movement. In a moment, only the senator and the drow remained in the chamber. I trust you are more comfortable, asked Senator Waitron of Blueborough. The irritation in his voice was clear. The drow bowed, bowed low. I appreciate your patience with me. It is one of quite sensitive. I'm not sure why a necromancer would be needed here, said Senator Lauren. We are not experiencing any issues with any undead in these lands that I'm aware of. The drow's smile grew. My lords and ladies, time is short, so let us do away with games. I know who you are. More importantly, I know what you are. All of you. And I know well the power you have, and I am quite impressed with what you've built here. Yet, even now in this city, is a threat to all of it, right beneath your noses. There are also here incredible opportunities. Everybody's picking up on what he's saying there, but he's seeming to imply the senators may be more than what they seem. Something that he would be particularly well-versed at understanding. Senator Lauren's face also smiled, though it showed only cruelty and danger. So be it, said the senator. I've, how you know these things is a concern, yet I'm sure you understand just having such knowledge would normally be a death sentence. He's implying, hmm, so okay, fine. The things you know, a little concerned how you know them, but more importantly, just having that knowledge, normally going to get you killed. There is no need for threats, said Simthenius. I have not come to harm what you have built here. I seek not to extort or seek a part of your power or wealth. I am here to help you. By doing so, help myself. What is this threat you speak of? asked Senator Leach. Again, the drow smiled. 
your city has been dealing with some unrest the past couple of days. What you're here meeting about, and I think we all know that caused it. Caused by three men. From what I understand, two of those men are missing. One of them is in custody. That is the only one that really matters. You must understand that the man you have in your custody is not what you think. And he is a danger to all of you. You must have him killed immediately. Now, the senators, by this point, had already planned on that, to be honest with you. They knew this was one of the three, and hopefully they found the other two. Make examples of them, that kind of thing. The death seemed like a fitting punishment for all that went down. But, you know, they say that. Well, we kind of planned on doing that anyways. But what is it to you? Why is it so important to you that this man die? You must understand that this man is a man of great power. Let me begin by explaining what it is you have. His mother is an elf, but not just any elf. Her name is Lady Artemis Silverstar, head cleric of healing, great temple of uh, serenity. Senators look at each other, really not happy to hear this, but understand why a necromancer's death might not be happy with you know, someone whose mom's a cleric of healing, healing in life, if you will, but you could also understand how potentially they might have a problem with that as well. More so, these are very well-learned people, and they know who exactly are. They do not take a lot of happiness hearing that her son is, in fact, caused these problems. You gotta imagine how their mind's gonna jump. If they are potentially something along the lines of what's being implied here, why would the son of a cleric of healing be here causing problems in their city? Hello, Terry. They say we acknowledge we 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 are aware of her existence and kind of what we said, not as much detail, but kind of it is disturbing to think that her child might be here causing civil unrest. Yes, but I must tell you, that is actually not the important part of his lineage. It's actually his father that is the greatest concern. His father, you see, is vampire, but not as you would expect. He is born of the curse. His world, the origin world. Senators are very taken back and interested in this. Orn says, a world where vampires are born. It's just a fable. Sentia says, ah, I assure you it is not. It is the home world and it is where the origin of the entire disease originally came from. His father is of that blood. Shares that blood. But, on top of all of that, his father's the demon. The senators are like, okay, now you're just piling this on. Half elven, half quarter living vampire, quarter living vampire, quarter demon. 
Yes. So you can imagine the amount of power that lies in that bloodline, the untapped strength and potential in the soul or essence of a being like the man you currently have in your custody. A life force more powerful than very likely any you've ever come across. Lauren is clearly interested. The other senators are too. But Lauren asks this question again. Again, I ask, why do you want this man? What is it to you? Why come here placing yourself potentially to give us this information? Hello, Singh. Senius smiles even bigger. This man has been a thorn in my side for a very long time. And his death will make my plans much easier. Plans, I must say, take place far, far away from here. Be not here, neither would I be. With his death, reason to stay. I can tell you this. I know that sowing chaos in this city is important. Keeping the burrows at each other's throat, testosterone high, Gives you more energy to feed off it, as well as keeping anyone from asking too many. A public execution of this man. His name is Seraph. Would do much to provide them with this type of anarchy. Show what type of example is made. And fear into the other folks. While at the same time, if handled correctly, well, his death could provide much power. Those of you here. Senators murmuring, looking at each other. Again, talking as if they're not speaking, because in fact they're talking while they're Hopefully you guys picked up on that. <laughs> speaking to each other without words. We will consider your word. Says Lauren. But, uh, again, you brought much risk to yourself here just to come and bring us. And send you smiles and says, no. Risk it all. Turning, walks out of the chamber. Ask for leave. Back on them and confidently well, the senators are intrigued by what he said. They are not happy with that. Not because they've been slighted. He is very confident. And seems to know quite a bit about them. So to show that kind of confidence with that knowledge, that means a lot. That means he's not afraid of them, and should be. So what does he know or have that they don't? The senators speak again and agree, hmm, this matter will definitely require some discussion because his words, if what he says is true, what a boon this could be. What a source of power this could be for all of us. At the same time, they call in the guard, give word to have the drow followed. They don't trust him either. But they would like more information on this prisoner that's currently sitting in one of them. 
So, before we jump into the rest of the story, those of you who may not remember, Vincentius has a last name, and it is Firemoon. A man who's already been seen in the shadows once in this bit of the storyline. But I thought I would share with you a picture. Normally I have little painted minis that I make on Hero Forge that I put up on the website and I share here to show you what characters look like. And I have one for him, and I just don't have it finished yet. But I wanted to show you guys the picture that inspired this character. Going through different art online one day, I came across this photo and it gave me the total idea for this character. So I was going to share that with you. That is Vincentius. Um, the half drow, son of Nylat Fireman. But I would share that little tidbit. Very also an overwhelmingly well drawn picture. I, I, it's got I think a signature in the bottom corner, but I couldn't figure out what. It was. <laughs> but I'd love to let the person know who did it. That uh, that's that's an amazing piece of artwork. Totally love it. If we can find it out, we'll give him a shout out because I'd love to find out that. Senius Firemoon, also confirming the man in the shadows. Uh, the younger, I should clarify. This is the younger, the older one from. You don't know what I'm talking about. You missed an episode. <laughs> Let's continue. Deacon awakens in darkness. He's laying on a hard ground, and there's a heavy weight on top of him. He's laying on his back. It's pitch black, and his body aches, and his head hurts, and something gummy in his eye. Feel, he assumes it's probably blood from some type of cut, but he doesn't know where he is, and it takes him a moment to kind of calm down and gather his wits and try to remember what was the last thing he remembered. He remembers the spell, the explosion, and the fall. Calming himself, he casts a very easy, quick light spell, lights up, that he and shows him that he's inside of a, a chamber, obviously underground, and a large amount of the fallen building is landing on top of him. Now the building itself, being big chunks of wood and such, I want you to imagine that what he fell in was not a cellar, much much deeper than that. The building was built over something akin to an old well. But a huge well, the well the size of you know, a good-sized living room, if you guess what size a good size is, but you understand. And as he fell down, pieces you know came down with him, although a lot of that jammed up and clogged up the hole all the way down. But the entire building didn't land on top of it. A lot of it's up there, and you can probably still hear it creaking and stuff as it shifts occasionally. It takes him a few minutes to be able to work his way out from under the rubble that has him pinned. Fortunately, it's it's not overwhelmingly impossible to move, but he's able to climb out. He still has most of his basic stuff with him. He's able to fish around and find his sword and his shield that are buried in there as well, and to dig those out, and everything on his pouches are pretty much still there. He had two healing potions on them, but one of them broke in the fall. He uses the other one to heal up a chunk of the damage and injuries he's taken. Immediately feeling much better, although not at 100%. Minor healing. I don't talk that much about them actually taking potions. I need to be more uh, 
involved with that. But yeah, he quaffs one right here. His last one, sadly. Because a lot of their basic gear they left back at the inn, right? They're not walking around with their backpacks and everything on. They have their basic weapons, basic gear, and some of the important stuff on them. But some of their even valuable stuff's locked up in their room back at the inn. Walking around bedrolls on them. Especially when you're paying for a room, right? Why would you not leave some stuff there? He looks around the room to see if he can, you know, find anything. And he realizes the chamber he's in is very old. You can tell just by looking at the brickwork. It's not like a common cellar. He's much deeper than, you know, it would appear. And again, it's, while it kind of has the feeling of a big round well, he can only see part of the room because the rubble fills the other side. And so much so that he can't see if there's a way out through there. But he knows he can never get through that rubble or dig dig through it. It would just take way too long and most of the pieces are too heavy. He has to look on his side of the room and as he's looking around, the only thing he can find is there is a small, looks like tunnel, rounded, you know, rounded roof, but just, just enough that he could, he can fit into it. just right about head height that he could walk through. And again, these are man-made. These are not natural by any means. So with no other option, he proceeds to make his way down that little tunnel. Now, he only goes a very short distance before it also comes to an end. And it looks like there's a, it, it, there was a cave-in. And the cave-in itself, it's, it's, it looks like it was recent as well. The explosion of the magic bell that he unleashed probably shook the ground all around here. And with all the damage being done, caused a mini earthquake. And it also caused that cave-in. But what it also did was cause a crack in the side of the wall. The crack appears to go in a good distance, and if he squeezes in, he could probably fit into it. And he's trying to figure out, well, what are my options here? And as he looks through the crack, he kind of notices something. He dispels his spell for a moment. And after giving himself a few minutes in the darkness, sure enough, he sees almost what appears to be the tiniest bit of glow through the crack. Now, you got to remember, he has no infravision. And he does not have a spell that gives him infravision. Not within his ability. So once again, relighting the spell, he decides he's going to try to squeeze his way through this crack. It's not easy. Um, and there's times where he's having to crouch and so on and so forth and hold his shields up to the side and wiggle his way through. Uh, claustrophobic, not fun if you were claustrophobic, but not a major issue he has. But I'll be honest with you, when you're a large distance underground squeezing through a crack with no one to save you, I think everybody would be a little bit claustrophobic. Except for them weird people who do that for fun. Dwarves. Anyways, <laughs> so he manages to squeeze his way through, and as he gets to the end of it, he pulling himself, he can see that there's uh, some type of, again, space on the other side, and he's like, oh, good, maybe another tunnel. Let me see if I can get into that. And he manages to pop himself out. Uh, he does so, he loses balance a little bit, and he lands in the gravel. He manages to get back up again, dust himself off, and recast his light spell. Um... So as he gets in there and he stands up and he looks around, he can see that the chamber he's in now, it's, it's not a chamber, but a very wide hallway. Okay? So it's very rounded on top. It's almost like a half circle. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's like a half tube, if you will. And you can see just a short distance away, a big set of double doors. On the walls next to him, you can see that there are some torches that are lit. Though they glow with a bit of a blue light. You can very easily see these are not normal torches. They're magical in nature. Um, how long they burned or how long they've been burning, it's hard for him to tell. Uh, but again, remember, he's a warrior slash wizard. He has magic training. He understands some of this stuff just from seeing it, right? Um, 
So he sees these double doors, and he goes to walk forward and almost slips in the gravel again. Looking down, paying a bit more attention, he realizes it is not gravel that he's standing in, but instead the ground is completely littered in bones of all sorts of sizes, though easy to tell uh, humanoid, right? Humans, elves, dwarves, gnomes, halflings. Uh, looking at skull stuff, you can see there's a mixture of races in there, and they all seem very old. Nothing looks fresh. There's no blood or clothing or anything. It's all just bone pieces. Which makes him wonder, how deep is it that he's standing in? You know, is it a full circle and the whole bottom half of this tube is bones? He doesn't think so, just based on the way the doors are set. But you know, he's like, well, there's the doors. And then looking the other direction, the tunnel just goes off into the darkness. He decides to check the doors first, right? Doors might lead to stairs or an exit or something. There's a door there. Somebody put it for a reason. He begins to make his way closer to the doors. He only goes a short way towards them when the doors begin to glow with an unearthly light. The doors begin to glow blue, and he stops immediately. He knows a ward spells when he sees one. He's like, okay. Some type of magical trap? Is it warded? What's going on? Without moving too much closer, he begins to really inspect the door. And as he's looking at it, in all the details, he doesn't really see any glyphs or signs of protection, no magical writings of any kind. But he does finally notice one thing that makes a huge difference. He sees the hinges of the door. So, here's an interesting thing for you. One of the easiest questions you can ask your DM when you're playing D&D that most people never think to ask. Can I see the hinges? If you can see the hinges, then the door is open towards you. Can't see the hinges, and away from you. Hinges are on the inside. Find that way because A, that's just how doors work, and could probably feasibly be put something on the outside. What's the point of having a door you can lock? Someone could just reach up and pull the pin off your hinge, right? That's why the hinges are in the inside of your door. So people can't do that. Part of the reason. So he sees the hinges on the door, which lets him know that that door is warded most likely to keep something out or to keep something in, right? Not to keep someone from going that way through the door, from like just regular travel. So now he's like, okay, is that door warded to not allow anyone into this tunnel thing? Or is there something back here I got to worry about that they've got locked up? Two concerns. Either way, whatever's on the other side of the door would be, in his mind, outside. He's currently inside whatever this structure setup is. Now, just looking at the door and the way that it's set up and so on, he very much believes very quickly that it's going to be more powerful than he's going to have the ability to dispel. And so he could spend a lot of time trying or try the other direction. Thinking that's probably better, maybe going inside, you can find another way out. Maybe there's more than one door that leads into this place, something that's easier to go. But best bet is to go the opposite direction and try to go deeper or further in to see potentially if he can find another way out. Not sure what's in there with him. He does draw his, so his sword. Fear for what may lie below. Begins to make his way down the tunnel. Mugen is also in an underground chamber. 
Although this one is just a an old underground basement of a of an old warehouse that at this point is mostly abandoned as it's partially falling apart. In this room basement area underneath this old warehouse lives an average of about a hundred gully dwarves. Mugen's learned that several hundred more live throughout the city and other little coves and hidden places throughout in the sewers and such. But this is one of the larger areas where they seem to congregate. Um, Mugen managed to, you know, he managed to get some sleep and he got some food in him, which, uh, you know, some good gully cooking, uh, although questionable to its source, uh, did hit his belly just right. Mugen, of course, is being treated like a celebrity. Word of the battle gully that managed to uh, kill the uh, big monster Jarek who'd been terrorizing gullies for years had spread like wildfire through the gully community, and many gullies had come just to see what this was all about. Uh, Mugen's very outlandish appearance, mohawk and colored hair and beard, and the, all the, remember, he's got tattoos on his face and arms and chest, very Mad Maxian, if you will, uh, definitely stands out from the gullies who normally are just wearing old clothing they could find or old socks or rags or whatever. Um, his gear is in much better condition. He's carrying that magical warhammer that they're all afraid to poke, but they all want to. Um, but the fact that, you know, the other gullies, several of the other gullies he saved, they're like, no, it killed Jarek. And I mean, let's be honest, the gullies, one thing gullies do have access to is limited knowledge. I say limited because they're not that smart. Sometimes they don't comprehend things, but they're everywhere. They get in and out of places nobody else can. They they see things. So knowing Jarek is dead, confirming that, and this whole city being in unrest, you can imagine the gullies went into hiding very quickly. Um, so that tale, you know, the fact that they're searching for the battle gully, the guards are, that's also knowledge. <clears throat> At first, they didn't quite know what to make of him. And they asked a lot of questions. And once he explained that he was... Prince Mugen of New Gully, that just opened up a whole new chain of questions. Prince? Prince of what? Well, I'm Prince of New Gully. What's New Gully? Where's Old Gully? Who's the Gully? What's it, you know, so on and so forth. He had to explain that New Gully was a city just of gully dwarves. Although, you know, he always leaves out the fact that his father is a gnome. You know, because that's just confusing to, to most. He'll, he'll tell, like, you know, humans and such. But he understands that for gullies who've never been there, understanding that his dad is a gnome and that he's the only gnome and he's the king of gullies is hard enough. So explaining that there's a city where gullies are safe, where King Figgy, the king of the gullies, protects them and teaches them to fight, much like they taught Mugen. They're, they're very excited, interested to hear this. So like, it's a play. How far away? Very far. Like, lots of far? Yes. How long it take to get there? Lots of moons. They're like, hmm, lots of moons. Because again, gullies can't count more than one if you're lucky too. Unlike Mugen, who's almost a savant when it comes to numbers and mathematics. Remember that. Hasn't popped up a lot, but it's important. But again, he's lived his whole life with gullies, right? And so he knows how to speak to them. He's raised, he's more intelligent than the average half known, so on and so forth. But he, uh, he knows how to talk to gullies to explain things in a way that make more sense. Lots of moons moon and then another moon and then another moon. It'd take lots of those to get there. He explained about how Figgy was a king that protects gullies and that he was his father. King that, as the prince, it was also Mugen's job to protect the gullies. And that's why he killed and fought Jarek to protect the gullies. Because even though they are not gullies from New Gully, 
they're still considered part of the family. And this is this is something that that gullies have a, a natural feeling for. All gullies belong to a type of family because they've got nothing else. No one else respects them. Most of them disrespect them, and if anything, kill them wholesale. So uh, a very family orientation where look after each other, look after ourselves. You know that trying to survive that survival instinct that's very strong with gullies. So they pick up on that. All gullies part of the family. My job is to protect you too. And so they're like, oh, are you going to stay here and protect us in case there's more Jericks? And he has to explain, well, not exactly. I have friends and I'm trying to help them. And the guy's like, well, can we see New Gully? And Mugen's like, yes. One day you can go there. One day when I'm done helping my friends, I can come back. And I can take you there if you want to go. You can come where you'll be safe. Gullies are very interested in that. He's already explained that the gullies know how to, Figus taught them how to how to make food and how to farm animals, and that gullies don't go hungry and have warm places to sleep and, and medicines so they don't get sick. So this you know this sounds like a promised land to gullies. They're like that's 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 really cool. Yeah, we would like that. The gullies have also explained to him that the tunnel that Dina, he'd seen Dina in was actually a or an old drainage tunnel that led out of the city. Um, and that it wasn't easy to get to from where they were, but if they wanted to go around there by then, she'd be probably well gone. Which lets him know that she's probably left the city or left it and come back in somewhere else. Uh, but that's a concern because, you know, he doesn't want Dina to get too far away. He's also learned through the gullies that Seraph had been captured and was currently locked up in the city's prisons, although they were not able to find any signs or word of whatever happened to Deacon. Um, which, of course, scares Mugen. Does that mean Deacon's dead and that's why there's no word of them? Or is he escaped and hiding like Mugen is? He has to, has to help his friends. It's important. So he's gathering as much information as he can about the city. He learns that the gullies, of course, as he expected, have a very good working knowledge of the city. Have a great memory for that, and that's one thing that gullies have always been really good at, at least in the way I've always played them. Gullies are naturally talented when it comes to ma navigating mazes, and very often, sometimes can be used as often sometimes can very often be used as a guide to help figure out a maze. Taking a gully who can't count to two with you in your party might help you get through a maze much much easier because they just have that natural instinct of survival. It just makes sense to them mazes and the easiest route to get from one place to another. They usually can calculate that and figure it out pretty easy. Now, the Mugen himself is, uh, Mugen is afraid, of course, to ask the gullies for too much help. None of these are trained as warriors. In battle, they'd be slaughtered. He knows that. You know, if he, he'd kill to have a handful of his warriors from back in New Gully, now that he's trained and fought with for years. But um, he, he's afraid of asking any of these gullies to, to become directly involved in any way that could get them hurt. He just doesn't want to put them in danger that way. But they very much can be helpful in him getting around the city and also help him look for Deacon, Dina, and other things of importance. The Gully's very eager to help their new Gully hero, the Gully Prince, who they, they a lot of times call Mugen or they just call Prince. Uh, they're, they're eager to try to help him and very often you know, trying to step over each other to get into his good graces, right? They're trying to impress him uh, because he's, he's basically a hero to them at this point. So, you know, they, they, they would definitely, out of all the hundred gullies standing there in a circle around him, you know, they were looking for chances to, to stand out. One uh, gully in particular, uh, I believe, let's see here. Nope, not yet. Um, 
I may have missed it. Oh, there he is, yes. One uh, gully named Nub, who is particularly questioning of, of New Gully and, and very interested in wanting to see it, um, very quickly became a, a, a kind of a, a, a contact point. We'd go around and talk to the other gullies and find all the information and bring to Mugen what he needed. And so Nub very much quickly became very helpful to him. And so he's like, okay, I have to make plans to get back to the inn. That's the first thing Mugen determines. Okay, I don't know where Deacon is. I got gullies out looking for him. I know where Seraph is. I need to get back to the inn to get our stuff, right? Before something happens to it. Because we got good stuff in there. We got important stuff. A bunch of his monies are in there and he doesn't want to lose his monies. Seraph and Deacon have explained how important it is that he not lose his monies, but he also doesn't carry all of it with him at once. They taught him about that too. He has some hidden in his shoe. But it's very important that he gets the stuff back from the inn. And that's going to be his first goal, to try to get that stuff back. In the back of his mind, Mugen has a little bit of concern and worry. Because in his mind, he's like, you know, what if I'm not good enough to save my friends? Because, you know, he's a warrior. He took out Jarek. Yeah. He can fight. You throw him in a fight one-on-one or one-on-two or one-on-three. He, he can hold his own. He's confident in his ability to fight. But now we're stepping into things he's never had to deal with. Sneaking around. Trying to save people, trying to, you know, maybe break Seraph out of prison, find Deacon. This isn't stuff he's ever had to deal with before, and he's a little worried that he may not be good enough uh, to be able to, to, to do what his friends could do if the situation was reversed. Um, but in either case, uh, he's determined to try. He's definitely not going to give up. Figgy taught him better than that. Um, and so he begins to gather up some of the gullies and start delegating certain things he needs done. There was much to do. And he didn't have a lot of time to do. Now, Seraph lay in his cell in complete pain. He'd not been taken easily. In fact, he'd been beaten quite badly. The blood that lay on the slab where he lay, there's blood all over the slab and all over his clothes where he lay chained. Very quickly, I mean, they saw he was fast and strong when they were fighting him, so chaining him up only made sense. Uh, but he took the worst beating he's ever had in his life, hands down. Uh, they, they, he did, was not going to go down, and they just beat him into unconsciousness, which takes a lot for some Sarah. Uh, so he's in very, very rough shape. All the blood loss that he's dealt with and the injuries have left him quite weakened. His what few weapons and gear he had on him were all confiscated, um, and so he didn't have anything, of course. Why would they? He's in prison. So all he has down there is just the very basics of his clothes, much still soaked in his own blood and the blood of other people. <laughs> Again, didn't go down easy. The few times that guards happened to come and check on him, he tried to ask about his friends, but had been ignored. No one would answer any of his questions. And to be honest, he barely had the strength to speak half the time. He had no idea if Mugen or Deegan were even alive. He had a little more hope for Mugen. He saw Mugen get into the get into the sewers, and and then in that place he had confidence Mugen would be able to to flee and hide from the humans. But he was very very much worried about his friend Deacon. The few cells he could see from where he is were all empty, so he didn't know if was he dead, was he captured and being held somewhere else. A lot of concern there. For a moment or two, there was the thought that when the guards did come in and check on him. They came in to check to make sure he was scared. They'd come into the cell. He had the thought of, you know, in the back of his mind, I could try to attack one. I was to drink from one of these. Go a great way. 
helping me regain my strength and healing up. That's really what he needs when he takes a beating this much, right? Um, unlike his father, who is very resistant to healing magic, he's slightly resistant to healing magic. Um, most of the healing magic that works best on Seraph is internal, right? Explain what that means. So anything like a, a potion works. Things that he can put inside of him that he can heal from the inside out have much more of an effect than a healing spell being cast on him. Um, the potion, in, in many of the same ways, starts to flow through his bloodstream, much like drinking blood does, and it kind of works the same way. It's more physical, more chemical, even though it's magical-based. Uh, even salves and things of that nature will help if put on a cut or a laceration, something like that, because, again, it's still going into the wound. It's able to get inside of him. Um, whereas a cream that would help with swelling or a bruise would have no effect, really. I mean, there might be the tiniest bit for you know a little bit of absorption, but again, magical spells of healing, um, to put it in D&D &D terms, would only be 25% as effective. So if you did a healing spell, and it did 1d8 hit points, and you rolled 8, he'd get 2. If that, if that helps make sense. At the same time, getting a rest in, he'll heal faster than the average person will because of his natural healing. But right now... That's not working as well because of the amount of blood loss and injuries that he's sustained. I'm trying to give you guys a little bit more feel for how Seraph's biology really works. Hopefully that helps a little bit. And even though he knew he could take, you know, if he managed to be able to get the strength enough to attack a guard, he'd never do that. Seraph has never done anything like that. Yes, he drinks blood from guards, but where that blood is attained is not something that he and his father really speak about. It's not from the average. Um, but to attack a guard just goes against what both he and his father, what he and his father raised him to, to believe and do, and it's just not something he's willing to do. At least he's not at that point yet. So that's a line he's not willing to cross. After several hours of laying there, you know, miserable, a man comes to the cell, well-dressed, states that he is there on behalf of the Senate, and advises him that Seraph has been condemned to death. And later that afternoon, there would be a public execution. He asks the man, what little voice he has, where his friends are. They are to be punished as well. The man waits a moment. says, where are your friends? We know you must know where they're hiding. Tell us. Maybe we'll make it easier on you. Seraph goes silent and just lays there in pain, but finally has a smile. They don't know where his friends are either. And that is the best news he could get at this moment. That means Deacon and, and, and Mugen were out there somewhere, not in custody. There's a good chance that at least they're okay. And regardless of what happens to him, maybe they'll still be able to get home. Best yet, maybe even be able to help Deacon. The man continues to ask questions for several moments, but Seraph refuses to answer any further. And finally, after a while, the man gives up and leaves. Seraph again lays there and tries to calm himself, trying not to move as much as he can help it. He's going to do his very best to try to heal what little he can. He's going to need any energy he can get if he has any hope of trying. Hope you notice we've been bouncing around from person to person today. We're going to continue that, by the way. 
a lot of what today's episode bouncing from place to place. A lot of these things are happening at the same time or close to the same time, but they are happening in the order. I'm not bouncing back and forth through time here. I want to stress that. It's all proceeding as one. Deacon had been traveling down the tunnel for hours. At first he thought it was one long straight tunnel, but soon learned that it twists and turns and went all over the place. And it wasn't long before he was completely lost. He was already lost, but now he has absolutely no idea which direction he's gone. He knows only that he's traveled a far distance. If anything, he'd think he'd traveled half the city, if not more. It's slow going. Walking on bones isn't easy. I'm just gonna... As he passes down the hallway, every so often more torches would light up. Magically, and the old torches behind him would go out. So it automatically senses someone's coming, lights up, and so on. So he's able to not have to use up any of his more spells. He's able to move quiet, cautiously, and prepared for anything. Which, for the record, uh, was always the tagline when we played D&D. Like, all right, we're going to go down the tunnel. I'm like, what are you going to do in the tunnel? Like, we're going to go quietly, cautiously, and prepared for anything. I'm like, sure you are. That was always their, their way of trying to, to cover their bases that I couldn't get a surprise on or something. But where I was going to go quietly, cautiously. Prepared for anything. You're never prepared for anything. Don't even try. But as he's been traveling down this tunnel, uh, a growing concern takes over him. Because he can sense that he's moving towards something. Something magical in nature. And whatever it is, is relatively powerful. He doesn't know how far away it is, but he can feel it getting stronger the further and further he goes. Um, finally, after traveling for what seemed like hours, he sees a hep ahead in the distance, another set of double doors. Ooh. Even from where he is, because when I say distance, like 40, 50 feet, the torches light up several at a time so he can see a distance. You can tell these doors look like the same kind of doors, but are more intricate, like door knockers on this side. So this definitely more appears already to be the outside set of the doors. As he makes his way closer to the doors, there's suddenly a rumbling before him, and he stops immediately. The ground begins to shake slightly, and the bones begin to shift. And then finally, two figures rise out of them. Constructs made of bones themselves. And I say constructs because they're not skeletons, okay? They're skeletal, humanoid in nature, but they're made with a mixture of bones. So it's clearly not a regular skeleton. You know, there may be a leg bone and an arm, one arm's longer than the other, but they're, 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 they're humanoid in shape. It's like got two arms, two legs, neck may be a little longer than it should be, things of that nature. These two skeletal construction guards rise from the floor. There are two of them. Both of them are holding a very ancient sword. You can see that. And scraps of cloth on them uh, appear that they at one point were very likely wearing some type of clothing or uniform that has long since decayed or rotted off. There's only little tiny pieces of it left. 90% of it's gone. The fact that it's made from multiple bones doesn't really make him think that it was some type of living creature and the meat's rotted. But at some point, somebody made this and gave it clothes. They also have hanging from their necks, oddly as the necks may look, amulets that are both identical, that each has a glowing rune that give off the same bluish glow as the door, original door did, which you can only assume that second door is going to have when he gets closer to it. 
One of the creature's mouth moves, the bottom jaw being much larger than the top jaw. Even though there's no lips or flesh, a sound comes out that's clearly words. It speaks in a language he does not know nor understand at all. He gets the feeling that it's asking for something, either a password or to identify himself. It's asking him for something, but doesn't know how to respond. So he stands there and they stand there and nothing happens. A growing sense of concern takes a step backwards. And the two figures begin to march forward. Damn, is all he can think. The sword's already in his hand. He has no choice but to combat. So these two things are coming. Both of them stand probably close to seven feet tall. They're, they're large. Again, press that. Uh, the swords that they're carrying are long swords. They're one hand wielding them. They don't have any type of shield or armor or protection. Uh, Deacon uses a sword. That puts him in a bit of a uh, disadvantage here. If you ever played D&D, bladed weapons aren't as effective on skeletal creatures as, say, a blunt weapon like a hammer or a mace or a morning star would be. Uh, because blades are meant to cut flesh. That's what they're designed for. Stab and poke and rip things apart. Skeletons don't have that. The best you can do is to try to snap a bone or, or break off a piece. And that puts him in a bit more limitation. But what he does have is magic. And he starts backing up as quickly as he can to get away from the doors. His concern is that any spells he may have to cast might trigger the ward on the doors, and who knows what that would cause. Um, the way he's looking, right? So there's one on his... He's looking, there's one on the left and right. The one on the left's legs are a little bit longer. <laughs> so it's... Uh, it's He actually goes a little bit faster than the one on the right and gets to him a little bit quicker. Sarah saw it moving quicker. Sarah, Deacon saw it moving faster and prepared for that. And right as it was about to raise its weapon and come down, he lets out a blast of magical energy, a push. And his goal with this, A, is to push it back. Probably won't cause any damage, but it's such a hard blast push to a living person, might knock the wind out of him or knock him backwards. His hope it start, it knocks it apart. He doesn't know how strong this thing is but he wants to test it. The push is strong enough that it does stumble and fall backwards and rises, and it looks like while well, a couple small pieces of bones may have fallen off, the majority of it is still together. At this point, the second one has reached him, and he enters into melee. The creature is strong, even though it has no muscle tissue of any kind with which to wield. The magical aura that holds it together uh, gives it quite a bit of strength. It's not skilled. It's obviously not something that knows how to sword fight. It's slashing and hacking, and it's him doing a lot of dodging in a normal fight against a living person doing this. He'd be just trying to reach in and get a poke or a cut every so often. It's harder against something like this, and he's still got to worry about that second one coming. Back of his mind, he's also racing through spells, right? What have I got? Fire. Probably not going to hurt bones. Ice. Probably not going to hurt bones. Electricity. Probably not going to hurt bones. In the back of his mind, he's like, I really need to get some spells for these situations. Like, you know, when I was learning spells and researching and finding new spells, fighting skeletons was not high on my list of things to do. And I really don't have a lot of spells for this situation. So he tries thinking of what he's got. Luckily with the melee, he's faster. The things aren't very fast. They're very hulkish. And so 
He starts attacking at their legs. His hope is to, again, break a bone. May not be able to break him apart, but it's still a bone. Bones are breakable. Sword, his, his sword is very sharp. And again, he's not carrying just a regular sword he picked up at the store. He's the son of Ray Firemoon, right? Much like Seraph, they are not walking around with non-magical gear. It's got some kick to it, which is one of his saving graces. His shield's probably at least a shield plus one. It's actually a plus two. But it's, it's a magical shield. His armor has some minor enchant on it, right? He's got some gear on him. They both got ring... All Well, De- Mugen doesn't, but both Seraph and Deacon have rings of protection. Um, they learned very early giving that to Mugen probably won't help him due to his magical resistance anyways. Same problem with the healing stuff. Without the natural form. So he starts going at the legs of this thing. Um, and easily manages to knock the leg out from one of it, and it tumbles and falls to the side. This enables him to go back to the other one just in time to dodge it as it cleaves through. Just nicks his shoulder a little bit. Tiny cut, but stings. And now he has to worry about tetanus, right? Because these are old ancient swords. That thing could be rusty. These are things you have to worry about. (laughs) But still sharp. So it's cleaving in with its big sword. He's a bit more on the defensive, kind of backing up at this point. Choosing in his mind to spell, he then tries the, the explosive gust again, but this time he doesn't target at the creature. He targets it at the floor. When he does, he bursts a bust of bones flying backwards. Again, one of the reasons he backed up away from the door. He sends the bones flying backwards. Now this, of course, knocks the feet right out from underneath the thing. He's not targeting the body at this point. And as it does, hits the feet, it topples forward. Some of the bones, much like ranged weapons, go flying backwards, hitting some of the other skeleton that's now back up on its feet and coming, slowing it, it down a little bit, and actually doing a little bit of damage. It's a big push. Some of these things are skulls and stuff smacking off of its skull. But the one that fell on the ground first fell forward, and he quickly rushes forward, and with all of his strength starts bringing it down on the back of the neck. It takes two or three chops before the head severs. It breaks off from the neck bone. And as soon as it does, he realizes the rest of the body stops moving. He doesn't have a lot of time to look into it deeper because now the second one has arrived again. And he's back into a fight with it. So, now he's got, okay, messing with his feet. And when he did, this one gets up here, it's missing part of its arm. Not the arm that was holding the sword. But it's missing part of his arm. So, it's not trying to attack with the other arm. It's just sword slashing. But still, okay, these things can be broken apart. Really got to work on that neck again. He doesn't have the ability to cast that same spell again. So he's got to look for other options. He starts kind of moving around. And again, he's having to be careful, right? He doesn't want to slip on the bones himself. It's relatively dexterous, but he's got to be careful. Now, he cleared a big open spot in the middle, right? When he flung those bones out of the way. Turns out the bones went down about a foot, foot and a half deep. So he jumps into that area to get a little bit more stability. He turns to face the skeleton, and the skeleton creature had stopped. The edge of the circle. It doesn't leave the bones. Gives him a moment to breathe, look around a little bit. He's like, okay. The thing starts walking around. I blew it right out of the, the center of the tunnel. You can still, there's still some bones on the side it can walk around. The area in the middle is very clear. Okay, okay, good. We found a limitation for the thing. 
gives me a minute. What can I do with spells? He starts looking around. I got the torches, got walls, I got bones. That's really all I've got to deal with here. Not a lot for him to manage. So he decides, okay, I'm going to try using magic missile, right? Basic spell, easy to do. can fling a couple of them. Energy damage, and it still should be able to do damage. If he targets the head or the neck, magic missile, you always hit what you want. He, uh, he might be able to weaken it, if, even if he can't take the head off, weaken enough so that a good shot will. He's casting that spell, and at the same time grows slightly dismayed to find the skeleton creature is kicking the bones towards him. Literally kicking bones back into the space he's made, creating an area for it to get closer to him. This thing is not completely stupid. Quickly unleashes the spell, fires it off, and sure enough, hits the thing in the neck several times. Now this makes the amulet flash as well. Makes a mental note of it. The thing, its head seems to be a little bit looser, but it's still moving forward as if it doesn't feel any of the damage. So he's trying to. So he decides on one other course of action. Really, the only other thing he's he's got left he could think of. And so he walks as far away from the thing as he can, and then charges it. But instead of swinging at it with his sword, he decides to charge at it with his shield. Right, a big blunt shield. Now, if you're new to Merged Worlds, uh, there is a weapon proficiency called shielding that exists in my homebrew, which, which is the ability to use your shield as a weapon. Um, there's advanced levels of it. You can Captain America a little bit, although it doesn't come back. But uh, there's, there's a couple different ways you can learn to use it. You can use it as a shield bash, which is where you charge, or you can learn to, you can learn to throw it as a ranged weapon. But if you throw it, it has to be a shield that's even on all sides. So square, triangular, Octagon. It's, it can't be a long tower shield. You can't. It's, it's not aerodynamically. Uh, it's got to be something that's more evenly spaced, if you will. Uh, his is not like that. His is the classic crest shield. It's crested at the top, comes down to a point at the bottom. So he uses his as a, as a bashing weapon, and he goes charging in and bashes into the thing, which causes it to knock back because it comes down with his sword. But he gets in close enough that it just kind of again clips him a little bit on the back. It more of a get hit with the butt end than the blade. Hurts still a little bit. But he crashes into the thing and knocks it back against the wall. It shakes a little bit, and he just starts bashing the chest and shield in the head of it with the shield over and over again. The thing still manages to get a good cut in and slices him cut deep on the arm. But eventually, he's successful, and with a good enough clean chop, the neck separates, and the head falls, and then the bones collapse into the puddle of bones, pile of bones. Hello, Jojo. <clears throat> Turn the page here. Take a moment to breathe. Sadly, no more healing potions. He goes and he gathers both of the amulets. He checks his swords too, but they're not magical. They're just old. But he takes both of the amulets that are still glowing with the same blue light as the door. Takes a look at the door, because as, he, as he's walking towards the door, it begins to glow blue, just like the ones the original ones did. But he looks at the ambulance, looks at the door, and he's like, all right, see what I can do with these. Makes his way directly up to the door. 
Now, the gullies lead Mugen out of the sewers in an entrance right near the inn, almost right across the street. They'd provided him with some old grain sacks that they were able to get a hold of that he'd managed to fashion into a makeshift cloak to hide his appearance. Again, he stands out, and again, people could be looking for him. Again, he's the one that killed Jarek. Of all three of them, he's probably the most recognizable. The gullies were very impressed that he could sew, and we wished he could take more time to teach them. Something mental note. You remember that. But he leaves the gullies in the, in the sewers and makes his way quickly across the street to the back side of the inn. Which again, if you remember, the inn was the battered barrel. Going around back, he finds the door to the kitchen open. Middle of the after early, early afternoon. You know, the, the people in the front. He walks in, opens the door and looks inside. And he finds the kitchen to be empty. Perfect. That's what he was hoping. He comes inside and quietly closes the door behind him and makes his way to a place that he can hide. It's not long before Amos enters. If you remember, Amos was the owner and barkeep of the battered barrel. He walks into the kitchen, probably to get some food. There's some food in there. Smells good. Probably cooking. Comes in. When he comes in the door, he has to come down a couple stairs into the kitchen. As he does... The door behind him closes because Mugen was hiding behind it. Amos turns around to see Mugen standing there, no longer covered, his warhammer in his hand, and Amos about faints. Amos is very surprised and scared to see Mugen. He'd heard what happens, and he knows that Mugen had killed Jarek. And he knew who Jarek was. Everybody knew who Jarek was. Jerk, but he was a champion and a very mean son of a bitch. And this little guy standing in his kitchen. Holding the same hammer he took out Jarek with, Amos is no Jarek. Not sure what, what he wants. Puts his hands up and begins to beg, please don't hurt me. I promise, I didn't do anything. I didn't tell him anything about you. Please don't hurt me. Mugen Sly. Like, asks him, what does he know about Deacon? Has he seen Deacon? Has Deacon been by? His, his friend with the dark hair. Amos says, no, none of them had returned. Mugen's the first one he's seen. The white-haired, no, the dark-haired young man had returned. Mugen's a little upset by this. He was really hoping that maybe Deacon had come by, too. Says, where's our stuff? What'd you do with our things? Trying to seem very tough at this point. Trying to be imposing. He's very imposing, but he doesn't know he's imposing, so he's trying hard to be imposing. Amos, Amos points towards a, door, a small door in that same room in the kitchen storage closet says, your stuff's all in there. He goes, I didn't, I just put it in there. I didn't tell anybody I had it. Just put it in there. And he did that for a reason. You know, Amos didn't call the guard and say, oh, look, here's their stuff. The last thing he wants is to be connected with the three people that caused all that problem. Amos doesn't want to get pulled into that or potentially be considered, you know, problem. Because let's be honest, Amos is not red, right? He's not part of Red Burrow. Red Burrow's very up on arms right now and they're the big burrow. Last thing he wants in his is to draw attention to his color. His people wouldn't like that either. So his best thing was he just thought he'd stash their stuff in the room and act like he'd never seen them before. Mugen goes over and opens the door up and pulls out their stuff and begins looking through it all. Glancing through, it doesn't appear that anything's missing. Even his monies are in there, which he's happy about. And he looks through Seraph's bag and he looks through and finds some stuff and finds one thing, pulls it out and tucks it, in, tucks it into his own belt. And gathers up their stuff. Again, their stuff's not that heavy. It's a bedroll and some basic things. Um, Mugen couldn't walk around carrying all of it and fight, but he could slap on his own backpack that he had and carry their stuff. 
with, with pretty much ease. <clears throat> um, so Mugen manages to get all their stuff back, and he looks at Amos, and he says, You keep quiet about this. Don't you tell anybody Mugen came and got this stuff. Amos is like, no, no, of course not, sire. I won't tell anyone. Didn't see you at all. Don't know anything about it. To be honest, I am glad for it to be gone. And if you'd like to leave too, I'd be glad about that. Mugen says, okay. I don't know yous. Yous don't know me. Keep it that way. Hammer on his back, grabs his friend's packs, and makes his way back out the kitchen door. Quickly makes his way across the street to the sewer entrance, where Nub and the other gullies are waiting for him. He hands down his friend's packs and then slides in himself. He's got their stuff now. That's something. And while he doesn't know where Deacon is, now he at least can try and help Seraph. <clears throat> so Seraph is once again in chains. Stronger than the last ones. In fact, these ones occasionally shimmered, as if magical. They'd come into the room and strapped them on and taken off his other chains. It had not been long after the, uh, the, the man had left, maybe an hour or two, and he did not feel much better than he did to begin with, to be completely honest. Healing is overwhelmingly slow right now. And even though they helped him stand, he wobbled. He barely had the strength to stand at times. They locked a chain to each one of his wrists, behind him behind him. And then began to escort him outside of the, uh, I guess what you call the prison area, out into a courtyard that opens out into the city streets. So imagine that this is a building, a good-sized building with cells in it, where the guards and such are. Um, but in front of it, it's kind of it goes back in a space off the street. So um, if you were walking up to this, right, there's a line of buildings. And there's a space, and set back in is this building. So there's a little courtyard in front of it, and that's where they would do things like hangings and such. Because occasionally, that type of thing has happened, you see. That's where you'd find the thing where people were sometimes with their heads and the hands through the boards and you know, all that kind of stuff. That's where you'd see all that stuff happening. Um, he was being escorted by over a dozen well-armed guards, clearly trained and experienced, and none of them looked beat up, so it didn't look like they were involved in the issues of the day before. He was walked into the open courtyard, and he could see that a huge crowd had gathered at the entrance of that courtyard, watching all of the, what was about to go on. It was clear that word of the execution had spread quickly. The Senate had made sure of that. They wanted this to be a spectacle. He glanced around him and saw that he was still the only one being led uh, out into the courtyard. Again, gave a bit of a sigh of relief. His friends were not being taken up there as well. At least that was something. In the center of this courtyard area was a platform that looks like uh, it had been raised recently. Not today. It's probably, a, it's not an old one, but it's not a new one. Uh, but clearly there'd been some modifications. We're going to talk about that in a minute. As he was led up the uh, stairs on the, on the side, he could see that there was a chopping block. Saw the large hooded executioner standing there with his very large double-bladed battle axe. Huge thing. The executioner, of course, historically, in, in this situation, very large, muscular man. <clears throat> His face covered so that you don't know who he is. So that way you can walk around on the streets and uh, you know, live a regular life. Although, the downside to that, anybody who's a really big guy, people are like, is that the executioner? Very easily, Jarek could have been the executioner had he not been dead at this point. Definitely fit that kind of a build. 
Man is sitting there holding this big double-bladed axe. As he's taken up there, kind of standing before the, the block, he looks down and he can see that he's standing in almost what could be considered a trough, if that makes sense. Like it's been constructed in a way that where he would stand, it bowls down into a, a, a rounded bowl that's long and a person could lay in it. And the chopping block is kind of at one end, but if the head fell off, it would still land in the trough. Does that make sense to everyone, hopefully? Doesn't see any drain, but he sees that if he was to die, the body would land in this, this spot. Um, let's see. The block, of course, looks well used, and um, even the executioner had been confused by the senator's instructions. But, this is important. The word had gone out as part of this notification of execution that Seraph had put a curse on the city. The only way to remove this curse was with his death. The executioner was told that Seraph's body and blood would be also be needed to break the curse. And so the platform had been designed and set up so that it would catch all of it. So that after his death, all the blood that could be gathered as well as his body was to be brought to the senators as well. Again, a very strange request that had never been made before, but if it's true, this is a curse. Well, magic, man. Who knows, right? As Seraph is brought up, he, the chains, which were long chains, mind you, are unhooked from his back. They were, they were tied to his back, but then the long chains were being held by the guards that rescued they're unhooked from his back, so his arms are still chained, and the chains are led down. There's two big metal rings on either side that have been bolted down. The chains are fed through those, and on the other side, one of the guards, there's a man on each one, and they pull on the chains, and this forces Seraph down, right, pulls his arms down, and he is forced to kind of fumble down onto his knees in front of the chopping block. This helps, helps him down so he can't stand up, kind of pulls him down so he can't stand up again. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, as this is happening, a well-dressed, the well-dressed man from earlier makes his way up onto the dais. And the crowd again begins to roar and cheer, knowing that this man's about to speak. After a moment, they quiet, that he could begin. <clears throat> the man began to read out all of the charges that were being laid out for Seraph, including the murder of, uh, Jarek, uh, a good and noble son of the city as well as countless other people, guards that were injured, inciting a riot, blaming the deaths of everyone on Seraph. They don't mention his friends. <clears throat> Many people know of the friends, but Seraph's very quickly been made the figurehead of all of this. His friends aren't mentioned, so everybody's really focused just on Seraph at this point. While this list of charges, and it's a long speech, it's going on for a while. While it's going on, and this, and what the punishment's going to be, and how he's being death, and that there's a curse, and with his death, the people will be freed, and so on and so forth. While all this is going on, Seraph begins to feel a, a bit of a tingling and burning in his wrists, where the chains are. The small amount of strength that had been growing in him as he'd been trying to rest and heal over the last little while, again, begins to fade, almost as if it's being pulled out of him. And his bruised face and body again begin to ache more, even more than they did before. And with it comes a feeling of hopelessness, of loss. 
feels like he's failed and that he's failed his friends and everything he's dragged them through has been for nothing. All of this is going on and he's just feeling this overwhelming sense of loss and depression. The crowd again begins to cheer and scream as the executioner makes a show of beginning to sharpen the blade of the axe. Now the blade's already sharp. This is all part of the show. Right? They, and, and this is historically accurate in a lot of these things. You know, if you've ever watched a movie where someone's executed, or especially in the Old West and a hanging, there's always people cheering and jeering. This was a spectacle. It was an event. Kids were taken to these type of things. Um, so people are cheering for it. Even the people that may have been on his side back in the uh, arena when uh, they were gonna, the Reds were gonna attack him and his friends. You know, at this point, it all becomes part of the show. Especially you start hearing about curses. And stuff. The crowd is yelling and screaming and cheering and things are being yelled and so on and so forth. And Seraph is just sitting there hearing it all. You know, kill him, murderer, blah, 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 demon, because, you know, curses and such, and wizard, and kill the wizard, and so on and so forth. All this stuff is going on as he's just sitting there in his bloody ripped up clothes. But through all of that, even though everything that's going on in his mind and he can feel his energy just draining from him and he's getting weaker. And he hears the crowd wishing for his death and the guy sharpening his axe. Through all of it, he still has his super hearing, right? He's very, very strong hearing. He's hearing the, the voices and the phrases and the killer and the murder and this and that. And then he hears something in the middle. Single word. Word being yelled out in the middle of all that screaming, but it catches his attention. Someone yelled the word, Dina. He almost thinks he's imagined it, but then a moment again, he hears it yelled again. Cutting through all the other sound, he just hears the name Dina being yelled. He raises his head and begins to scan the crowd with the one eye that can see. The other one's mostly swollen, half swollen. He begins to scan the crowd. And he focuses and he starts to block out the other noises and he's targeting. And it doesn't take him but a moment to find the source. And sure enough, standing no higher than the rest of the crowd's knees, near the very front of the crowd, sees a little figure screaming it out. As soon as the little man sees that Seraph is looking at him, he pulls back his hood to reveal his little mohawk. Excited, he begins hopping up and down and he's waving. Seraph is looking right at him, and he says, Dina, I find it, Dina. I find it, her. She was actually here. She's so close. She's here, somewhere. He'd almost given up. They tried to break him. They'd almost done it. Two men, the two men holding the chains, begin to pull harder, pulling Sarah forward, pull his head down on the chopping block. They pull. Nothing happens. He doesn't budge. In fact, he wasn't seeing much of anything at this point. Vision was going all red. Because Seraph was very angry. Seraph was furious. It had taken Deacon several hours 
to finally figure out how the spell on the doors worked. The spell was strong, but very old. Back looking at it, hundreds of years old since this spell had been cast. Doesn't even look like it had been renewed in that time. He was able to see use the he was able to figure out how to use the enchantments on the amulets, which were linked to the spell, part of that ward itself, to boost his own nullification spell, along with a little boost from his wild magic as well. And he believed he'd figured out a way to temporarily remove the ward from the door. Now he knew that the, the spell was still strong. If it was successful, he'd only have a minute to open the door and get through before the ward would be back. And once he did it, he wouldn't be able to do it again. He's going to use up what he's got. It's, he's got a one shot at this. But he had no other option at this point. His only other way he could think of to get out was through this door, and he had to take it. And all he could hope is that on the other side, there'd be a way out. Now, in the Hall of the Senators, the seven liches were furious. Everything had been working perfectly. The life force of the elf vampire creature had been draining through the enchanted trains directly to them. They had never tasted anything so sweet, so powerful. And then all of a sudden, it just stopped. Now, the chains were powerful magic items. Not something could have been easily dispelled. Should have been more than powerful enough to control this creature, regardless of its life force. They were powerful and they'd been created by the liches themselves, so they couldn't imagine what could possibly have stopped the spell from continuing. They were in fact about to call for the guards for an update on the execution. Go find out what's going on. What is the status of the execution? It's a short, it's a distance away. Remember, they're in the inner city. This is out in the outer city. They were about to call for the guards to go find out the status of the execution. We need to know what's going on. We need more of that. It's, we don't have all of that yet. Already they felt their power swell just from sucking a little bit of Seraph's life force. When suddenly, about that time, calamity struck. A silent alarm sounded that only they could hear. And all seven liches howled in fear and anger. Someone had opened the door to the crypt. As one, they gathered together and began to cast the spell that would raise the huge stone slab in the center of the chamber floor that would allow them to reach down into the crypt. They must hurry. They had to get below before it was too late. Seraph's whole body strained. With every ounce of strength he had, he pulled. And in just a moment, he was again standing. The men, that, the men on each end of the chain that were holding were barely able to hold on. And two more were trying to climb up the side of the dais to help grab on and pull Seraph back down. Others rushed towards the stairs to try to get up there to help, you know, armed guards and such, to help deal with the threat itself. And the executioner was just standing there, shocked, not understanding what was happening. Seraph no longer felt any of the pain in his body, the aches or the bruises. 
The blood that stained his body and clothes actually appeared to be receding, almost like he was absorbing it back into himself. The only thing Sarah felt was fury. He screamed in anger. The sound was so loud, those nearest by, even the front rows of the crowd, had to slap their hands over their ears to try to cut out the sound that was causing the pain in their head. The amount of furiousness that was in there. With a final heave, there was a loud snap, and the chains that held both of his arms broke. The men that were holding the other ends went flying backwards, clear off the dais, knocking the other ones down that were trying to climb up and help them. And Sarah stood there with about four to five feet of chain hanging from each of his wrists. Now by this time, five or six guards had managed to climb up onto the dais and charged at him weapons drawn. Sarah spun. His fangs and the claws on his hands had fully extended. And his eyes had gone completely red. Now, when I say red, I don't mean he has red eyes. Okay? I want you to imagine that you were looking at his eyes and it flowed like liquid. Just a solid liquid crimson blood. Because that's exactly what it is. It's like there's a layer of blood over his eyes that's just slowly swirling and moving. It literally is. He can still see, but things are tainted red. As the guards rushed for him, he snapped forward both of his wrists, lashing out with the chains. Two men fell, skulls cracked open. The others hesitated, but it was too late. Sarah moved forward again, swinging and lashing with the chains, snapping and breaking bone, crushing the men, literally sending them flying off the back of the dais. The executioner, not knowing, again, what's going on, but, again, not a coward, charged at Seraph with his big axe. Seraph heard his footsteps and had barely begun to spin before his arm lashed out and the chain went out wrapping around the man's neck and yanking it forward, clear off of his feet. Again, it's only four to five feet of chain. The bag was right about to hit him with the axe, yanking so hard the man's neck snaps like a twig. Large body falling to the ground. Seraph reached down and picked up the huge two-handed axe with one hand and turning looked at the crowd and began to walk towards them. People began to scream and run in fear. All but one little man Pumping his fist, screaming, Fuck yeah! Drawing his warhammer, Mugen rushed forward to join his friend. And many more soldiers were in there. They were right outside the, the barracks. There were a lot of soldiers there watching them. They all start to charge towards Seraph. But Seraph moves so fast. And for once, Seraph showed absolutely no mercy. Bodies were cleaved in two, arms and legs and heads cut off with single swipes. The axe was, in fact, very sharp. And in his hand, little more than a little more than a toy when it came to the weight. I just realized how bad my hair looks today. If you're watching the video, I apologize. I was wearing a hat earlier. Pay no attention to my hair. It's stress. <laughs> As Mugen was rushing forward, he, 
He was behind one of the guards that was trying to attack Seraph. One swing of his hammer buckled the back of the man's legs. The man hit the ground. Seraph had managed to clear out a large amount of the guards around him. And the other guards, many of them had backed off at this point, not sure what else to do. Here was this thing that a moment ago was about to be headed. And again, fangs, huge claws, wielding this giant axe with one hand. This is clearly not a regular guy. This is not a human. They've already been told he put a curse on there. What kind of beast is this? Most people's first instinct would be vampire. But it's the daytime, so that can't be the case. So what kind of demon from what world is this that they're dealing with? Mugen makes his way up to Seraph and stops a few feet away. And Seraph looks at him, snapping quickly. Freezes. Seraph seems confused at first, looking at Mugen. Mugen had been prepared for that. Mugen had been traveling with Seraph and Deacon a long time. Seraph had spoken of situations where he'd lost control in the past. Not quite like he had right now, but where he'd had some of these issues in the past. And uh, Mugen, his arm put his hands back, hands out, began to talk to him coming. Seraph, it's me, Mugen. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you find Dina. And that was really, that's, that's what it takes. Seraph still with the Fury and the Furious gets a bit of his head back on his shoulders again. Another guard comes in and literally cleaves him in half. But he's a bit more in control again. A bit of the savagery that takes him over when this happened comes a bit. Again, of all of even though his friends can help calm him down, nothing does that as well as Dina does. And he's seeing Mugen. He looks down and he's, he looks at Mugen and he smiles. He's like, he says, thank you, my friend. Because he realizes Mugen saved him, right? He was about to give up and Mugen saved him. Mugen steps up and reaches into his belt and pulls out something that he'd gotten from Seraph's backpack. And in there, where he'd hidden it, was the decanter of blood that Seraph normally traveled with. He hadn't taken it with him to the arena. To lose that and set it down somewhere in a fight so he'd stashed it. Mugen understood how important that could be, especially if Seraph was hurt. Seraph sets down the axe and reaches, takes it, unbucks it, begins to drink long and hard from it, and the change is almost immediate. The color of his skin, as pale as it is, begins to come back, and you can literally see wounds healing on him. And he drinks from it long, he way more than normal. Finally, stops himself and twists it off. Tucks it in his own belt, smiling, looks down at his friend. At this point, Mugen had already been waving as he's sitting there guzzling. And several gullies, including Nub, came running over with the rest of their gear. Some of the guards had begun to gather. Some of them come running out of the building, right? Now, Nub and several of the gullies had been given a job by Mugen. And they had snuck into the keep, into the and managed to gather Seraph's weapons and what little stuff that he had had on him. He said had twice, that was bad English. That he had on him at the time of his capture. And managed to escape out of there with it, with everything else going on. And they get it over to Mugen. Mugen, of course, here's your weapons, here's your swords to, to Seraph. Seraph, now feeling stronger and healed up, reaches down and just snaps the chains off his wrists. Kicks the axe aside and picks up his swords again. Remember, he dual-wields swords just like... He used sword and shield or dual wields, depending on what's needed. Um, but he has dual long swords at this point. 
He does use scimitars. His dad uses scimitars. He takes his gear and thanks Nub as well, and then Mugen tells Nub to run and hide. That is too dangerous on the streets. People are still screaming and running. But at this time, more guards have arrived and start rushing towards them. Seraph takes his swords and looks down at Mugen, who smiles back up at them and says, Okay, then. And they make forward and begin to just cut them down. Again, Seraph at this point is still furious. He's calmed a bit. He's regained control. But he's still furious. Eyes are still red. Fangs are still out. Claws out. He's still in beast mode at this point. But with some control. But he's not showing control. Which is something Seraph has always done. At this point, he's literally eliminating anything that's be- that could threaten him or Mugen. Him or his friend. Anything that also could be standing between him and Dina. Because he needs to know what's going on with Dina. He hasn't had a chance to talk to Mugen about that yet. He needs to know what he knows about Dina. These people are keeping that from happening. And every second that this takes, who knows what could be happening to Dina. Not holding back. And again, after a couple more minutes, another pile of dead men are on the ground. And the rest back up again, fleeing back at this point, afraid of exactly what Seraph is able to do. Because he's not taking any hits. What few is, he's just literally walking off like they're not even hitting him. In fact, many of them are healing immediately. His, his regeneration's kicked into overdrive at this point. He, in a moment of lull, he turns to, to, to Mugen and says, Where's Dina? You said you found her. And he nods his head. He goes, I saw her in the sewers. She was with that cleric lady. Seraph gets angry again. She lied, he growled. Mugen just nods. Come, my little friend, he says. I'll play no more games. I'm going to get answers, finally, one way or another. And begins walking up the street towards the part of the city where the temple is. You can imagine as he's doing that, people are just fleeing. On top of everything they just saw, has a curse on this thing. What's he going to turn into a dragon next? It's only making the situation more fearful for everyone. And even the guards at this point. Deacon took one step through the doors and knew he was in incredible danger. The room, the chamber he'd stepped into was clearly a crypt. Seven sarcophagi sat on the floor in a circle, feet together. So I want to point that out, right? They're laying there, kind of out like the petals of a flower, the open circular space in the bottom. So the heads are facing away, feet are at the, at the narrow end, if that makes sense. Okay? Floating in the center of that circle, about four feet above the ground, was a large crystal, jagged in shape, just floating there. Magical energy crackled around it like electricity and flowed from it to the top of each of the coffins, where on top of each sat a large bottle. The bottles were all different looking, though very ornate and decorative. Most, some ceramic, some glass, some even metal. Weak metal, a mixture of the two. Three. And the energy was crackling from that stone into these three, or these seven bottles that sat directly on top of the center of each of these sarcophagi. On the other side of the chamber, he could see a round staircase that led up and into the ceiling. Deacon was too well trained in the ways of magic 
not to know what stood before him. But seven? In one place? How was that even possible? That creatures of that much power would be gathered in one location. And it was then that he heard the screaming howls from far above him, followed by the sound of heavy stone grinding. The deacon knew he had maybe seconds. Maybe seconds. Knowing what he's caused. Those howls let him know that they know he's here. He quickly drew his sword. Again, as I mentioned earlier, it's very well enchanted. It is not a regular sword. It was a gift from his father, made specifically for Deacon. He could only hope that it was strong enough. Enchantments were. He rushed to the closest coffin and brought the sword down on the magical phylactery that, phylactery that stood there, shattering it into pieces. A loud howling scream came from inside the coffin beneath it and then went silent. But he hadn't stopped. He then moved around the room, moving to each one, smashing each of the bottles as he could get to them. They're far enough away that, you know, the long sarcophago, that he just couldn't stand in the middle and pop, 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 pop. He had to move around to get each one from the outside. And each time he did so, a scream came in from the side of the coffin from which it was smashed. Bottle after bottle. He finally reached the last one, ready to bring his sword down one fast, last time, when a voice shouted out, Stop! He hesitated a moment and looked. He saw standing at the bottom of the stairs the creature that was Senator Loren. The illusion was gone now and revealed now the sunken flesh of the ancient wizard tight against the bone of its skull. I know not who you are or how you came to be here, Loren said. But to do so was no small feat. Shown yourself quite capable. And even from here, I can sense the raw magical power in Wizard. Not your wizard, Harry. Not stealing somebody's line, but your wizard, clearly. Very powerful, untapped potential. Wild magic. You've killed all the others. I'm the last. Now, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to step into one of their places. A city that was shared by the seven of us, not shared with just the two. There's, uh, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to step into their places. What was shared by seven could be shared by two. And I can teach you. I can teach you to use your power and your magic in ways never imagined. Think of it. Wealth and power unimaginable. You could be a god among men. Deacon just stared at him calmly. Shook his head. I am not my uncle. Lauren quickly lashed out with a spell at the same time. But Deacon brought the sword crashing down. Explosion. Now I'm going to switch on you guys. I'm about to bring something up that's completely out of left field. Not even going to expect this. Ready for it? King Featherflame screamed in pain and fell to his knees. Who 
the heck is King Featherflame? Well, if you remember, King Featherflame is actually the king of this city, if nothing in a name only, right? He fell, screamed in pain. The guards that were standing in the chamber he's in, there's a bunch of people hanging out, chatting and so on, wealthy, nobly people, and drinking wine and eating cheese and crackers, because that's what rich people eat. Good quality cheese. And none of them cheap Ritz. Triscuits. Best crackers. I like Ritz, too. Triscuits are the best. Anyways. They rush over. Are you okay, my lord? Are you okay, your highness? Help them, help them stand back up again. He's like, do you need a clear it? Should we send for a healer? The king says, no, no. No, I'm fine. Thank you. I'm fine. He stands there for a minute with his hands on his head. Hand on his head. His forehead, just like I'm doing right now. You're in the audio. I have my hand on my head. He goes, I am fine. I'm fine. Starts looking at him like, that's good. He goes, no, I am fine. He stands there shocked. The voices are gone. I'm in control once more. Quickly, call all the guards. What? Bring all the guards in. My captains, bring all my guards in. I need all my guards. I need all my advisors. Bring in the captains. Summon them all here immediately. It's an emergency. And the guy's like, oh, God, yes. And the guard runs off to summon everybody. I'm used to this type of urgency from the king. Sure enough, immediately, captains of the king's guard come in, as well as soldiers, which trained soldiers and stuff, right? These are people dedicated to the king. As well as several of the advisors that have served his family for years that came in. And they're all like, what's going on? What's happening, sir? And he's like, silence, listen to me. I do not know what has happened, and I do not know how long it will last. But you must hear my words, and you must take them very seriously. For many years, I've been under an enchantment, and I've not been in control of myself. I've been forced to watch as I've been puppeted. This has been done by the senators that have been ruling this kingdom in my stead. The senators are not men and women as you know them. They're in fact powerful wizards. I dare say liches. And with this city for generations. I have been under their spell. Something has happened and for the first time in my adult life I am free of it. You must listen to me now. They have been feeding on our people for generations. Regardless of what I might say in the next few minutes or hour, regardless of anything that I might say in contrary to the order I'm giving you now, all guards and soldiers, all of them, under your command, are to gather and go to the Senate. You are to find the senators and immediately execute them. People are shocked. They're like, what? The king has always been a kind of a confused guy, a goofy person, lazy, didn't get involved, don't care about drinking and partying and womanizing and so on and so forth. But the urgency and the strength of conviction of which he's speaking right now, shocking the words that he's saying. I swear this to you as your king, but more importantly, I am commanding it within my power to do so. All of them, immediately, though I warn you, when you get there, expect a battle. It will not go quietly. And you will not go alone. Bring me my sword and my armor. The fight I will lead myself. But most importantly, if I at any time order you to cease these actions, you are to disregard that order and move forward with their execution, even if it means my own life. 
That's that's a pretty serious business right there. Regardless of what I'm saying, even if it kills me, you're to ignore it and you're to kill these people anyways. Because it is the best, the only thing we can do to protect them. King commands it again and people begin to jump and call for weapons, gather the swords and ready themselves. And it is not but a few moments later before the king, armed and armored himself, leads a large battalion of the soldiers and guards that are at his command towards the Senate. They arrive at the Senate tower and they find that the doors have been sealed from the inside. He immediately commands that the door be broken in. Takes a little while. But finally they manage to smash the Senate doors open. They weren't really built to keep people out. Regular people. Weapons drawn, the king leads his soldiers inside, inside of the Senate chamber and into the central chamber. Senators would normally be found. Inside this room, they find that the large circular stone floor has been moved, raised from the ground, and hidden beneath it was a set of circular stairs going down. A set of stairs that even at this moment, a young man with dark hair appears to be climbing out of. The man looks injured, badly burned, one arm and shoulder. But he's you know, making his way up. The king and his soldiers all pull swords. The king demands the man identify himself. Deacon looks and sighs and kind of smiles and shakes his head. My name is Prince Deacon Firemoon, the kingdom of Firemoon. You're here, I can only assume. Hopefully it's to help. The king goes, where are the senators? Men and women that are normally in this chamber. Are they below? Not any longer, Deacon says. Well, when is quickly, they are now all destroyed. But it was no easy task to do so. I'm shocked to hear this. All of them? I believe so, sir. Because he's obviously he's the king. You can see that he's got the crown on his head. Uh, I believe so, sir. Though the crypt below would not hurt to do more damage to it. There still lie seven sarcophagi, and I don't know what's inside. But the phylacteries that gave them their power have all been smashed. Though, if there were others or another way of escaping, I can't tell you. But for now, at least, the source of their power here in the city has been broken. King, of course, immediately commands, explain what has happened. How did this come to be? How did you get down there? Why did you even do all this? I need to know information. But he believes the young man because he's not enchanted anymore. And searching the room, they find several clothings and things that were clearly worn by the senators that now longer is nothing in them but dust. Deacon explains. They were here in the city, searching for someone, leaves out the whole love interest, but searching for a woman named Dina. He was here with his two friends, with some unrest in the city. He managed, to he managed to fall through a floor of a building and land down below, where he managed to find his way into this thing and tells his side of the story. Deacon asks about his friends, Seraph and Mugen. I traveled with two others. Another young man, pointed ears, elven-like, with long white hair and a gully dwarf that looks nothing like a normal gully dwarf. Mohawk, tattoos, well-armed, trained for battle. One of the guards that was there says, Aye, yes, I know them, the white-haired one. He was the one that was 
that the Senate had proclaimed he should be executed for causing the civil unrest. Saying this makes Deacon a little concerned. Executed, does he still live? Another guard comes rushing in. Sire, I have news. What is it, General? What you were speaking about, the man with the white hair. It seems the execution did not go off as planned. Tell me, what has happened, the king says. He explains what's happened. Seraph managed to break from the chains, attacked, of course, by city guards, where he has then been making his way through the sturdy seats, cutting down any person who stands before him. At this point, they're saying close to 100 are probably dead. King turns and looks at Deacon. What kind of man is this you have in my kingdom? Deacon smiles sadly. A man that's been pushed too far, your highness. But I can tell you this. You can get me to him. You can make this stop. And end this. Not a bad man. Just trying to find our friend, and most likely myself. If I can get back to him, we can bring an end to this. King stops for a minute and looks and considers, and he goes, What you've said is true, and you're the reason that this threat that has been over my city is finally at an end, and I and my people owe you more than I can ever begin to imagine. Take your word on this, and we will try. King turns, and he calls for horses to be brought immediately. Deacon thanks him, and uh, they wait on the horses. Next section. Seraph and Mugen had reached the temple. By this point, the citizens and guards alike fled before them. Those very few who didn't were cut down quickly. But most people no longer were attacking him. He just, already the word was out and people fled before him, hid inside their businesses. When they did arrive at the temple, standing before its closed doors were ten Templars. From different gods. Good and neutral. Seraph stopped and dipped his weapons. Sign of respect. Out of respect for my mother, I will all give you one chance. Leave now. Stand between me. Templars, instead drawing their weapons, move forward. So Seraph had no choice. It only took a moment to take all ten of them down. Templars don't see quite as much combat as ever. These were not the most experienced. He did in this situation more so than he had been hold back a little. And of the ten, only a couple died. Most he was able to subdue uh, with relatively seriously injuries. With the ten men no longer a threat, Seraph and Mugen made their way to the doors, where Seraph found that it was barred from the inside. Seraph frowned. A moment later, the doors exploded open, and the wooden beam that held them closed snapped like a twig. Stepping inside, Seraph called out for the priestess, screaming the name of Priestess Arana, the cleric of knowledge who handed the temple. Other clerics, servants, and others inside fled before them as Seraph and Mugen made their way through the temple towards the chapel. Arriving there, they threw open the doors. They were locked, but they just threw open the doors. To find the priestess standing before the altar, two Templars of knowledge standing before her. 
Seraph and Mugen had barely stepped in the room before the two Templars charged them. Seraph took no pleasure in removing them. Looking at the priestess, the anger and fury was back in Seraph's face. Now, at this point, his claws have receded, so is his fang. The eyes are still red, but they're not as bad. Now it looks like, just like he has red eyes. And he begins walking towards the priestess. The priestess quickly casts a spell, and a magical shield appears before him. Seraph steps up to the shield, shimmering a little bit so you can see it. Pokes it, knocks on it. And he looks at the priestess, and with more of an irritated look, like, you're just slowing me down. And he looks down and looks at Mugen. Mugen looks at him and goes, Mugen takes his hammer off and hands it to Seraph, and then turning, walks forward straight through the shield. Cleric is shocked and immediately tries to cast another spell, but doesn't have an opportunity before Mugen's fist goes crashing into her stomach knocking the wind completely out of her as her body crumples to the ground, coughing and choking. Mugen steps back. A moment later, the priestess is in the air, Seraph's hand around her neck, her feet not touching the ground. You lied to me, he said. I did not know, she exclaimed. I thought you were Oramon. By the time she told me about you, it was too late. We were already captured. There was nothing we could do. Where is she? Seraph growled. She is gone. We left the city the night the night before, last night. Through the sewers. She left knowing I was here? Cleric clearly looks nervous. We did not tell her. We didn't want to frighten her or make her try to stay. It was only but it was more important that we got her to safety. He pulls her up so that they're looking eye to eye. He's taller than her, so her feet still aren't touching the ground. Which way? East, she says, still struggling to breathe. Towards a distant coast. And my friend Deacon? Of him we've seen no word. Seen no sign and heard no word. Seen no word. Nobody sees words. He would say that. Seraph looked deep into her eyes spoke very calmly and with a hushed voice. The threat was easy to tell. By far, he's been harmed in any way. Be back. Rip your lying tongue yourself. Like a child tossing away a doll, he flung the cleric to the side where she hit the wall and crumpled down. Looking down at his friend, Seraph and Mugen turned and made their way out of the temple. Finally reaching the exit to the temple, they step out to find more than a hundred city guard had gathered. Armed and prepared. This is a lot. It's the biggest group they've had to look at at this point. But even still, Seraph is determined. Begins to walk down the stairs. The guards begin to move forward. Seraph has barely taken a couple of steps before finally there's calling out, Hold! Hold in order of the king! By order of the king. All the wrong words. By order of the king! Well, Seraph and the guards stop, looking towards the voices. A group of men in the distance come riding up in horses. 
Seraph and Deep Mugen both smile, recognizing Deacon next to the man that clearly must be the king. As they arrive, the guards part, of course, to see the king. The king has ordered this, and steps back. Sheath your weapons, fools! All the guards immediately nervous, not sure understanding what's going on, but they do so. Deacon hops off and rushes forward and embraces both of his friends. Both Mugen and Seraph are overwhelmingly joyed to see that he's okay. Why he's with the king, they're not sure, but still. Maybe this means they don't have to kill 100 people. Because, you know, Mugen's like, really didn't want to hurt 100 more people, even though, you know, he hurts like three or four out of the 100. But, you know, in his mind, <laughs> I'm helping too. <laughs> Deacon looks and says, did you find her? Sarah smiles. Left the city last night, headed east. We're going to look for you and then go after her. You've found me, my friend, and there's no time to waste. She left last night. Chance we can still catch her. Deacon turns and says, Your Highness, King steps forward. My friend Seraph Bloodmore. And Prince Mugen of New Gullyville. Oh, confused and shocked by that last statement himself two princes and uh elf like the trio quite a bit of damage you've done to my city but the damage you've done ails compared to the good that you've done for it as well say you were leaving yes your highness sarah person we seek left your city last night must catch up to her as quick in great danger. King nods. Take these horses. They are yours. Least I can do. I don't have much in the way of supplies. Seraph goes, we won't need them. Get our own supplies. And of course, at this point, they Seraph pulls off the second backpack and hands it to Deacon, who's like, oh good, all my stuff's in here. Grabs that back on. You know, oh good, you've got my stuff too. I was afraid we lost this at the end, right? Because he doesn't know what's going on. Seraph and Deacon and Mugen take no time. Seraph hops on the king's horse. Deacon hops back on the horse he was on, reaches down, grabs Mugen by the hand, and pulls him up behind him. Thank you, Your Highness, for the horses. We will be on our way. And that's it then, said the king. After all this and all that's happened, you're just going to leave, and we're not going to know anything else about what's, what led all of this to be. Sarah smiled. It's for the best you know as little as possible. I am sorry for the lives that were lost. But I had to do what I had to do to protect mine. Odds, he's like, I don't quite understand, but can't fault you for that. Killed a lot of guards, but at this point, his thoughts are, how many of these guards know that they were working for liches? Were all these guards trustable? You know what I mean? He's got a lot of fishing to do as well. He's got a lot of things to take care of in this kingdom. You gotta assume somebody knew they were working for liches. You know what I mean? There are still people, and are there still people who are still working? Are there still a threat there? The king has a whole lot to deal with in a kingdom where, for most of his life, he's been the joke king. Joke king. Uh -huh. No, sorry, pun. But the joke king. So there's a lot that he's gonna have to deal with. The king wishes them well, and genuinely hopes that they find the friend that they're searching. And they're about to leave when 
Mugen uh, goes, <clears throat> Seraph looks at Mugen and points at himself and points kind of towards the sewers. Seraph nods and smiles. Your Highness, one last thing, if I may. Of course, said the gully doors of your city have been treated cruelly, inhumane for far too long. Like the rest of the people living here, they're your citizens and are deserving of your protection as well. That has failed them. I'm going to have to ask that you do better. It's important that you do. Because one day we're going to come back. Those gullies who wish to leave, come with us or will be welcome to do so. But I'll tell you now, find that the gullies have been harmed or mistreated or abused, have been. I will tear this city down with my And the threat comes across clear. And the, he's straight up threatening the king, surrounded by 100 guards. And the king's like, stand. Will they come back or not? The king's like, I got bigger stuff to deal with right now. But so be it. I'll take that under advisement. Seraph nods once and looks at Mugen. Mugen's like, like, okay, good. And they turn their horses and immediately start making their way towards the closest city gate. People just parting before them. The captain step, one of the captains steps up next to the king and goes, we're just going to let them go? Yes, we are. Why, your highness? All that's happened, why would we just let them go? Because I think those are the three most dangerous young men I've ever seen in my life. The sooner they're out of this city, I think the better off we'll all be. Now, we have other things we need to do. Let's go. And summoning guards over so they can start, you know, generals, this is what needs to be done. We've got to search the houses, right? We've got to search this, we've got to search the different boroughs, who knows what. A lot of things going on. City gates open and Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen, their horses racing up the road towards the east. But few people are on the road, people hopping out of the way to not get run over because they're not slowing down. Far up on a hill, well, not too far, visible, way up on a hill under the shade of several trees, three figures stood watching them go. My apologies, my one said to the apologies, Vincentius, whatever are you apologizing? Failed, my lord. Man lives. The execution was not successful. Vincentius smiles and laughs. It was never meant. What? No. It's important he didn't. No way he could hasn't made his choice yet. But, today he tapped into anger. More importantly, tapped into chaos. Every time that happens, moves him a little bit, little bit closer to making the right choice. Now come, there are more things to set in motion. Today, successful one. Smiling, Vincentius, returns back to the horses that they had waiting for a short distance. <clears throat> now you'd think that's where I'm going to end. 
that'd be a great spot to end. But it's not. We're going to run a little bit longer today because it's taking longer to get here, but I can't stop yet. It took three hours of hard riding to finally catch up. And when Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen saw what was on the road ahead of them, they spurred their horses even faster. They arrived at the wagons, corpses of the horses and the humans that lay dead on the road, quickly jumped off their horses and began searching for survivors, fearing the van. Cough and a wheeze from next to a wagon alerted them to someone alive, and they rushed over to find a man, all too familiar. He was injured, horribly so, stomach wound. They knew there was nothing they could do to save him, and he wouldn't be alive much longer. The man dressed in gray looked up in shock and surprise, maybe even a little bit of hope. Seraph, by the gods, is it really you, boy? Yes, Garrick, Seraph said. It was Dina's uncle who lay there. Not far away, she could see, he could see the body, Seraph could see the body of her grandfather, grandmother. Where is she? They took her. Ormanians caught up with us about an hour ago. I'd be 20, 25 of them. Did the best we could, but we were no match. They took her. Which direction did they go? There said. It continued east, moving fast. They had horses. Seraph, you've got to get her. You're the only one here. You've got to save her. You can't let them take her back. Don't know what they're going to do with her. Don't understand what's in store. Fear not, Uncle, he said. He had gotten to the point he'd been calling him Uncle. I will save our girl. The man smiled and coughed up a little bit of blood himself. You gotta imagine Sarah's like, mm. <laughs> so, nodded back, he goes, should have brought you to begin with. She wanted to. And all of it may have been for nothing. Not for nothing. We'll find her. Followed you this far. I'm going to find her. Man smiled. The last thing he did is the life faded from his eyes. And once again, Seraph saw only red. Fury once again took hold of him. He now knew that she was in the hands of the worst possible group of people. Could not allow that. He didn't say a word. Neither did Mugen or Deacon have a chance to. And then Seraph was gone. Leaving the horse behind, Seraph disappeared, moving faster than the horse could ever dream, going east. Shit, was all that Deacon could say. Quickly jumped up on the horse, reaching down. Mugen 
understanding the urgency, jumped up and grabbed his hand and pulled up onto the back. Deacon spurred the horse as fast as he could, hoping they could catch up before things were too late. A group of Oromanians traveled at a steady pace. Not too fast, but steady. They didn't want to wear out their horses, but they were in a hurry. Yeah, they had a place to get to. But finally, they had found what they were looking for. Now could take a bit more time, although not too much time, for fear of reper what repercussions that could bring. They made their way down the East Road. Sure, this road would lead to a coast eventually. They knew that, probably about three or four days out. They'd recon the area well. From there, they would send for their ship. They'd take a direct sail back to Oromon. There was not much fear of being chased. They'd left no one alive, thought. And there was no one else around to concern them. So they weren't watching behind them as well as they should have. By the time they realized Seraph was coming, it was already too late for the ones in the back. Seraph's swords were drawn as he came upon the men, and the legs of the horses fell beneath them as the horses toppled, men on the backs falling as well. Seraph was everywhere at once. They tried to draw their weapons and swords, tried to fight back, but they had no idea what was going on. What was this demon, this beast, that was moving through them like a ghost? Men began to fall, screaming out. They tried to circle the prisoner, sat on the horse in the center, even now had a hood over her head. One by one they fell. Them, the beasts they rode, nothing left alive. Till there stood only one left. He'd hopped from his horse and pulled Dina down with him. Watching, trying to find where the thing was that was attacking his men. Turned quickly, but Seraph was already there. Felt the blade slide between his ribs. Man coughed. Laughed. Doesn't matter, said to Seraph. Can't stop him. He's claimed her. It's his. He will come for her over and over. Takes her home. Seraph stood there, looking into the man's eyes. Then let him come. With a single moment, ripped the man's throat out, tossed the body aside. Seraph? a feminine voice. Seraph dropped his swords, moved quickly to the hooded figure's side. Her hands were bound, though not too tightly. Much for her to get free. Quickly snapped them apart, not the hands off. Reaching up, untied the loose hood. The hood came off and her eyes were blinded for a second. She found herself standing there, face to face with Seraph. She began to cry. 
reached out and embraced him, and he too took her in his arms as well. I knew you'd come. I told them you wouldn't leave. I knew you'd come. I always will, he said. We're safe now, together. I will never let anyone harm you again. The two sat there, falling, they fell to their knees, sat there holding each other, tears off their faces. That's where they, that's where they were when Mugen and Deacon arrived at the carnage of the road. Dismounted their horses and slowly made their way through the bodies come standing near their friends. Mugen just smiled, tears in his own eyes, looking up at Deacon, and smiled back down. They'd finally found her, brought their two friends back together. Mugen said, he has his heart back. He can put his hand on his shoulder, Mugen's shoulder. That he has, my little friend. That he has. The door to the Great Hall of Serenity burst open. A man came through. A man by the name of Quan. Door had opened awfully quickly. Mercy looked up to see Quan enter and knew it was something of importance. The haste and as stoic as he was. No emotion, very still. Many was trying to hold his emotions. She nodded to the other nobles that had been visiting from the nearby city of so-and-so. If you'll please excuse us, uh, my husband and I have to see to a matter of course. We'll return shortly. Of course, the nobles pleased to let the king. Without a word, they made their way to the room adjoining the chamber, which was known as Mercy liked to call her situation room. But the young lady who played Mercy named it her situation room. It had the map of Serenity and she did all of her planning. What's going on, Quan? Ulrich said. Your Highness, I, I bring the gravest of news. Something very bad has happened. What is it? Mercy said. The Ormanian civil war has ended. Unfortunately, rebels have lost. What? said Ulrich. How? said Mercy. All of our reports said the rebellion was basically on the verge of winning. They have been for the last year. Yes, they were. Reports are now coming in from some of our shadows that managed to finally get into the cities. It seems that a unifying force has arrived. What do you mean by that, Mercy? Lomar of the Nine has returned for a moment. Both Ulrich and Mercy are like, hate Lomar. Lomar was the head of the clerics and right hand to previous emperor. Uh, had fled or disappeared back when the emperor was finally slain. Gone these 20 years. He's returned and he managed to turn the tide of the war in that period of time, Mercy asked. No, your highness. Said Quan. Not come back alone. He 
he brought with him another man. A man he claims is the son of the previous emperor. As you can imagine, clergy and even the nobles took this as an opportunity to rally behind a true successor to the throne. And with Lomar at his right hand, as he stood by his father's, very quickly rallied their troops to take back the capital city. There was like dominoes. He was named Empire, Emperor of Oromon about a month and a half ago. What we hear, the major cities have already been taken back, and what few rebels that are still fighting are only on the outline. Most have fled. So another emperor sits on the throne. Son, probably no smaller bastard than his father. Mercy stood there with her hands on the table, furious. Call everyone. Guards, the commanders, mages, temple, bring everyone in. This is eventually going to lead to war. We have to start preparing. One nodded and left take out the do what she'd asked or accept to mercy you think it'll come to that their line it will always come to that definitely explains why they're after come my husband we have to bid well to the nobles bid farewell to the nobles there's much planning and preparation to be That's where I'm going to stop for the night. Blarg. <laughs> so hopefully, today's episode was okay. And uh, hopefully it was a, a decent ending or second phase to the first part that we did last time. Um, I know I said that when I got to this side of the story, we were going to hit pretty big stuff. Um... And I know some people were worried they were going to be chasing Dina forever. That was never the intent. They're going to chase her for a while. I wasn't going to be sitting here telling you a story for the next five years while they're always chasing Dina. They were always meant to uh, get back together. Now, where they go from here, that we'll have to see in a later episode. But now a new emperor of Oromon sits on the throne. Son of Don which would technically brother of Dina. So when the dying soldier said, dying Ormanian soldier said, he will come for her. Did he mean Lomar? Maybe did he mean somebody else? I'd like to thank you all for coming and listening to my story. Thank you uh, again. My apologies for the five minute break while I dealt with the power issue. Um, I'll uh, be back again here in two more weeks where we'll be stepping back into the Artist, Maeve, Petal, Ran, and Kip section of the story. Uh, where we'll be, uh, for an episode or two, working on dealing with the Kingdom of Caradon. The events that were unfolding there. So we'll be stepping back over to them before we see exactly what's going to happen with Seraph. The Seraph things, we're going to wait on that a little bit so you guys can stew over that he's finally back with Dina. Uh, but we'll be back in two weeks uh, again to continue more Merge Worlds. Um, 
Again, I'd like to say thank you for watching. If you've enjoyed yourself, whether you're watching this today, tomorrow, 10 years down the road, please be sure to click the like button and follow the channel if you haven't already. Um, if you're listening on any of the audio podcast formats, thank you as well. It would be awesome if you wouldn't mind giving us a follow. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Podcasts. Uh, free audio podcasts available on all three. It would mean the world to me. I mean this. If you have any of those platforms, if you wouldn't mind giving it a follow, Trying to get a little bit of a following on all three of those. And if you have a chance to listen to a few episodes, maybe give it a five stars or a likes or a review. Definitely goes a long way towards helping the podcast story out. Uh, but yeah, back in two more weeks where I'll have some more minis to show you. Um, we're getting close to introducing a couple new characters. One in particular I'm very excited. love introducing so many more people. Hopefully you like today's story. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, please put it down in the comments section here, or you can go to our Discord channel. We have one of those. You'll find the link to it on my website, onlydraven.com, as well as a bunch of Merge Worlds information, pictures of painted minis of all the different characters that we talk about, in case you want to see what anybody looks like, as well as uh, links to the podcast themselves. So uh, definitely check all that out, okay? Thank you all for sharing some Merge Worlds time with me. As always, I appreciate it, and hopefully you'll come back and hear a little bit more Okay, folks, have yourselves a wonderful evening and thanks for sharing.